The true crime podcast you are listening to is based in fact. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No rumor, no spin, no theories, just back. Here's Lisa O'Brien. After a break, Kyle and I are back with episode 15. We're talking about the case against James Allen Coddington, who murdered his friend, 73-year-old Albert Troy Hale, when Mr. Hale refused to lend him money to fuel a drug binge in March of 1997. We'll talk about the case against Coddington, his trial, resentencing trial, and direct appeals along with his state and federal post-conviction claims. We'll also talk about the controversy surrounding his August 25th, 2022 execution and the information put forth by his advocates regarding his alleged remorse and the facts of his case. First, I feel there are two world events that deserve mention today. First, it is September 11th, 2022, the 21st anniversary of the attacks on New York, New York and Washington, D.C., and the tragic loss of life in Shanksville, PA, which is believed to have prevented an attack on the Capitol or White House in Washington, D.C. Also on Thursday, September 8, 2022, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II passed away, surrounded by members of her family at her summer estate at Balmore Castle in Scotland. Born on April 21, 1926, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor was the first child born to the Duke and Duchess of York. Her grandfather, King George V, decided including the name Victoria among her names wasn't necessary because she wasn't expected to ever ascend the throne. At that time, everyone expected that the Prince of Wales would marry and have children. In 1936, the course of Princess Elizabeth's life changed when her grandfather, George V, died and her uncle David, who became King Edward VIII, abdicated to marry the twice-divorced Wallace Warfield Simpson, an American. Though reluctant and believing he wasn't fit for the role, her father ascended to the throne as King George VI and began his reign. With the support of his wife, Queen Elizabeth, he guided the nation through World War II. During the Blitz in London, the couple visited areas that had been devastated by bombing the night before. Princess Elizabeth and her sister, Princess Margaret, did their part to help the children of the UK cope with events and the uncertainty of their lives because of the war. In 1944, at the age of 18, Princess Elizabeth enrolled in a vehicle maintenance course, and the following year, she joined the Auxil Auxiliary Territory Service. On VE Day, she and Princess Margaret made a rare visit outside the palace to celebrate with the people of London. At the age of 21, Elizabeth celebrated two milestones in her life, a radio broadcast in which she committed her life to the service of her people and her country, and in November 1947, her marriage to Philip Mountbatten, who was created Duke of Edinburgh. In 1952, at the age of 25, Elizabeth ascended to the throne when her father died in his sleep at Sandringham. Her husband became Prince Philip, the Prince Consort. 
Her 70 years on the throne were a collection of highs and lows, but to the public, Her Majesty always maintained her sense of duty, decorum, and dignity. In private, she was not as reserved as her public persona would suggest. She was known as a great mimic and knew how to tell a story that would entertain her audience. It was in her later years that she let go of her inner reserve and shared her wit and wisdom with her guests and audiences through documentaries and public speeches. In February 2022, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth II surpassed her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, as the longest-reigning monarch in English history. She was the second longest-reigning monarch in European history, surpassed only by French King Louis XIV, who reigned for 72 years, 110 days. I suspect that only true fans of English history will appreciate the irony in that fact. Queen Elizabeth's reign lasted 70 years, 7 months, and 2 days. On September 9, 2022, an accession council formally named the Queen's eldest son, Charles Philip Arthur George, as King Charles III. Her grandson, William, Duke of Cambridge, and his wife, Duchess Catherine, are now the Prince and Princess of Wales. In a speech broadcast to the world on Friday, King Charles III made a promise to his people and his country similar to the one made by his mother in 1947. He closed with a touching tribute to his mother, who was preceded in death by her beloved husband of 74 years, Prince Philip. Queen Elizabeth is survived by her children, His Majesty King Charles III, and Princess Royal, Prince Andrew, and Prince Edward. Twelve grandchildren. And 12 great-grandchildren. I apologize for breaking up. She just was an amazing woman. You know, she really was. I I will say I was not that interested in the royals, you know, before, you know, her passing. But then just reading about her life and what an amazing woman she was. She's truly inspirational. Yeah, she was. And she, you know, you and I were talking off off the air she uh she was she not only walked the walk she talked to talk she not only talked to talk she walked the walk and um, she really the you know the irony even though she really had no formal political power she was exactly what i think anybody would want in a leader you know somebody correct. who put duty ahead of everything never let her personal things get in front of her duty was never partisan and put the good of her people and her country above everything else. I mean, she is truly a model of what a leader should be. Correct. And, and so was her father. Um, That's one of the other sad things is that he felt like he was not adequate for the role. Um, He was incredibly worried that he would mess it up, uh, that he would do something wrong, put a foot wrong, that people would hate him. And he was one of the most beloved monarchs in the history of the country. Well, it's kind of funny. You know, it's I was thinking as you were reading and I'm having a senior moment now, his brother, you know, the remind me, Mr. Wallace. I mean, that's what he's become uh, known as. Right. The man who <laughs> left was everything a, he, for Wallace Simpson. He became the Duke of he became the Duke of Windsor. You know, he he was kind of, you know, he was kind of a man of that time of the, you know, kind of roaring 20s and in many ways, like a lot of what's trendy today, somebody who was selfish and just wanted it to be all about him and what he wanted. 
And, you know, by abdicating really left us with two monarchs that really put the country and the people ahead of their own personal desires. Right. And they, and they certainly did. I mean, both, even her father before the abdication, he was the one that George V entrusted with state, some state duties because he couldn't rely on the Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. And he was said to have said that, you know, the Prince of Wales would ruin himself within a year. And he hoped that nothing stood in Bertie and Elizabeth's way. So, you know, he had confidence, but again, and sometimes it's the person who doesn't feel adequate for the job that proves to be the best at. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't feel like you have the God-given right to be in charge, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to be a lot better. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I, people can say what they want about King Charles III, but I, I think we should all give him a chance. And I think that, you know, based on the fact I saw him in, as the playboy of the 1970s and the, you know, callous husband to Princess Diana. Um, but I have to say and give him credit where credit's due. He is not the same type of father to his sons that Prince Philip was to him. He is, he has been throughout their lives, a more loving, supportive, mm. hands-on father than Prince Philip. And I'm not criticizing Prince Philip. Prince Philip was a father of the times. Right. And, um, and you know, Prince Philip was not one to worry about how he felt. So, of course, he's not going to worry about how anybody else around him feels. Um, he wasn't into the emotional, mental, you, you did what you did, you did what you had to do, you did your duty, and you moved on. Exactly. And so that was, um, and I think the, the queen was, was the same. Um, she had her moments of private sorrow and mourning, I'm sure throughout her life, but in public, she was, she had to be strong for her people, whether it was a national tragedy or a personal tragedy. Right. And that's what leaders do, right? You have to Mm -hmm. be strong for your people, even when you're suffering. Yeah. So I I think he's going to be a, a good King. And I think he's going, he's learned from the best and he's going to do what his conscience believes is right. And uh, I think, you know, his speech, he, he's done very well with that so far. So, um, well, just the, I mean, even the grace he's shown, um, Harry has been pretty, you know, remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. So, although there may be, I, 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 if I were Harry and Megan, I would be happy with your new life in California and not stir the pot. Because your father is not going to be quite as forgiving as your grandmother. And Duke and Duchess of Sussex were given, can be taken. Exactly. And all of, I think Harry, and Harry's 
there was criticism because Harry lost his military, his right to wear a military, but that's because he left the royal family. Right. It's not, it wasn't done spitefully. It was done as a consequence of leaving and, 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 and giving up his royal duties. Well, and that's what, I mean, that's what, I mean, that's a good example of where duty is paragon. You know, we Mm -hmm. see too much today where people want to be able to do what they want and suffer no consequences. And it's refreshing to say, this is a, this is not a right. This is a privilege. Correct. And in order to maintain this privilege, certain things are expected of you. And if you, you know, if you seek not to have those, that's fine, but you don't get to keep all the privileges and then still do whatever you want, which is what is so many people just expect the world to be is that they should do whatever they want to do and suffer no consequences. Exactly. And, you know, and to a degree, I mean, at Prince Philip's funeral, um, Charles uh, and, and William could have worn their military regalia, but they chose not to because that would have singled Harry out. Exactly. Um, as, you know, not, not having that. So, you know, there are, uh, the family is not trying to rub his nose in anything and not trying to be spiteful. And I just hate, what bothers me the most is that as soon as Harry ceases to be useful to Megan, she's going to drop him. Oh, of course. And she's going to try and capitalize on that by getting a huge settlement. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you were to, if you were to juxtapose, you know, Queen Elizabeth represents everything we really need. And Meghan Markle represents everything that's just wrong with our culture and the sickness Mm -hmm. that is our culture. Just, but I think you're right. She went, I mean, it's, you know, she went to England to marry a famous person and magically hit the jackpot. And Mm -hmm. when, when that's no longer use, she will claim racism or something and divorce him and get a bunch of money and go on to a footballer or somebody else. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing that, that angered me with her Oprah interview. She claimed that she was subjected to racism, but honey, if they were racist, they would have said no to Harry. Exactly. Well, and as part of it, racism doesn't mean my feelings are hurt. They would have had good reason because she's divorced and her former spouse is still alive. So that's strike one. Nothing to do with race. She's American. That's strike two. (laughs) Or should have been. She's an actress. Strike three. You're out, girl. And it has nothing to do with your race. Because all of those things are independent of her race. Um, But... uh, I still do, I, I still don't think if somebody was speculating or or asking a question about Archie it was probably because they truly had never known a mixed race couple or never I seen I a don't, mixed race baby. Honestly, Lisa, if she said her name was Meghan Markle, I wouldn't <laughs> well, believe it. I would need proof. She is literally one of the biggest fib her, tellers. 
her name is not Megan. Her name is Rachel Megan Markle. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's nothing she says is true. She literally makes up stuff on the fly. So, because she's an actress. That was when they, when people were taught, we were talking in the lunchroom about their interview. And I was how I don't believe it. Well, you know, she got upset and she did this. And I'm like, y'all, she's an actress. Of course, she can give the proper, you know, emotion to something. She was probably picturing her dog dying. Right. You know, she she's not a genuine. And I don't think she was ever genuine when they were engaged. Um, but yeah, for her to and part of the complaint was the press. It's like, did you see what Princess Diana went through? Did you see exactly. what Catherine has gone through? Did you see what Sarah Ferguson? The press is always going to target one of the wives and vilify her but the royal family's you know answer to that is ignore it and it'll go away don't feed it so um and that they claim she they were that you know they protected catherine no catherine is careful of what she wears and what she says and what she does and people like her. If the if the media is mean to you, it's probably you. Exactly. <laughs> They're not just being mean for the hell of it. But uh, they were, and it was always very um, tenuous what they were talking about as far as the media. As well. I mean, I guess they were like the bullying allegations. But. Well, and it goes back to, I mean, this goes back to the. This goes back to sort of the strength of Queen Elizabeth. You know, here's a woman who was, you know, been somewhat on her deathbed for probably a couple of weeks and still served up the energy and the strength to inaugurate the new prime minister because mm-hmm. even to death's door put duty above all else. But we live in a culture where if my feelings are hurt, I'm bullied, or I need, I'm having a mental health crisis, or I face racism just because somebody tells me no. If I don't get my way, I'm having a yeah. mental health crisis. It just shows the, the, the fragility of, you know, today's average person and how we celebrate that fragility. And we celebrate, you know, oh my gosh, I can't take a question at a press conference. I need a mental health day. I, I'm, it's I can't handle it. Whereas you yeah. see a woman like the queen who, you know, continued to do her duty and stand tall, no matter how stressed out she was or how her mental health was suffering. She mm-hmm. always put duty number one. Yeah. And I, I think going back to the queen and closing out on the queen, I, I think I'm thankful that she she had become frail since Prince Philip's death. But I'm glad it wasn't something long and drawn out. Right. Um, it was so quick because I heard that morning the doctors were monitoring her health and were concerned. And then at lunchtime, they announced that she'd passed. And it was just. I, I can't believe it. No, it can't happen because this is for a lot of people. This is the only Queen of England we've ever known of. 
it's got to be for, I mean, I don't know what the number is, but it's got to be, I mean, especially when you think about people kind of coming into consciousness and realizing, mm-hmm. oh, there's a queen of England. It has yeah. to be 90% of the world, right? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the only people that would know of, uh, of her father would be people over the age of 70. Well, even then, I'm not sure if they were even fully, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, conscious of knowing it, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, like, you know, my, my also, and I, I want to say, um, one of the attorneys that I work with, uh, his father passed away on, uh, the 2nd of September, uh, prior to Labor Day weekend and my condolences to that family. Um, I won't mention his name on the air because I, I don't know that he wants to be a part of this podcast, so, but, uh. You know, he would have known because he was he was 99. He was a contemporary of the Queen. Or and a contemporary of Prince Philip. Right. But they would have to be, you know, Prince Philip in the Queen's age to know of any other monarch. Absolutely. In that country. Um, and I do I do also want to say there has been some negativity on Twitter from people who um kind of blame the queen for things that she had no control over and nothing to do with and um also her reign saw the independence of a lot of countries that had been part of the british empire twitter uh, my general view is twitter (laughs) is just a place where stupid people are allowed to plow she actually did a lot of good things for countries within the empire because the empire is no more. Yeah, there's there's usually on Twitter an inverse proportion to your intelligence to <laughs> your volume. For yeah, about ninety percent of Twitter, I, I'd say, you know, um, uh, Joe Neville's, Natalie Neville's, those are they're the exceptions on Twitter. Right. Uh, Dr. Langwa, who I don't think I've interviewed on this show, but I've interviewed on Clear and Convincing. He's also another. You know, another exception to the rule. Anything horse racing, it, it is an exception <laughs> to the rule. Um, there you go. <laughs> but, um, and that was a world that people uh, didn't necessarily associate, but uh, the horse racing world, world was incredibly touched by Her Majesty. And there were a lot of tributes from various entities in the horse racing world. Um. Claiborne Farms, Churchill Downs, Kentucky Derby, um, Frankie Dettori, Jockey, um, and both on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, because the Queen was a, a, a well-known and well-respected breeder of racehorses, owned racehorses, raced racehorses, and had had a su- very successful career in probably over 50 years um probably 70 years so um that is on she was also a breeder of corgis and labrador retrievers Uh, a lot of people forget that she also had a love for the labrador retriever especially the black labs yeah well that's a special place we have a little black lab well a big black lab yeah (laughs) so they're they're very rarely little no they're not (laughs) unless you unless you cross them with a corgi 
And then they're and then they're a a Labrador retriever with little legs. Yeah, exactly. Because that's usually what happens when you cross a corgi is (laughs) it maintains the um, it maintains the corgi body with the with the face and shape and fur and nose of whatever breed they were crossed with. (laughs) The same has also happened with a Basset Hound and a German Shepherd. So yeah, because basset hounds tend to be a little longer. But uh, all right, well, let's get into um, the case of the day. I know I promised everyone four cases looking at the Oklahoma executions um, that are set for the fall of 2002. Uh, 2022, sorry. And um, that is, uh, that was a little bit bit off more than I could chew yet again. So we're going to look at each indicate we're going to look at the cases individually. Of course, listeners may probably know that Richard Glossop did get a stay of execution. So his execution will not go forward on September 22nd. Uh, his stay was granted to December 8th, 2022. And that was done by uh, by Governor Kevin Stitt to give the Court of Criminal Appeals more time to consider his post-conviction claims and his successive application. Um, and that is still pending. The states responded. Uh, Glossop, I think, has filed a reply. Reed Smith has come out with some supplemental reports. And for those who can't, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. Uh, talking about additional information that they found, none of which is new. It involves letters written in 2003 by Justin Sneed and 2007 by Justin Sneed that they say claim, that they claim uh, show that Justin Sneed wanted to recant his trial testimony. Um, and his implication of Richard Glossop in the murder of Barry Guntries. Uh, We will also schedule another episode once the Court of Criminal Appeals makes a final determination uh, as to that application and decides whether they're going to grant a hearing or discovery or whether they're going to deny it outright and we'll play that by ear. So this case, uh, the victim is Albert Troy Hale. He was born... March 13th, 1923 in Arkansas. His parents were Raleigh S. Hale, who died in 1966, and Doris Dean Goff Hale, who died in 1990. His brothers, uh, he had three brothers, Sherman Hale, who died in 1998, Bill Hale, and Gene Hale. Uh, He was a restaurant owner. He was a U.S. Navy veteran, and at the time of his death, he worked at a Honda Auto Parts. Uh, business, they said, sometimes they said yard. So um, I don't know if there's a Honda manufacturing entity in Oklahoma or um, the logistics of that, because unfortunately in his clemency application, uh, the attorneys for Coddington did not see fit to tell us more about his victim. Um, he had four children, 
Ron, Steve, Mitch, and Patty, and uh, great-grandchildren Mike and Matt Hale, Tanya Couch, Tina DeLuca, Nick and Michael Graciano, Micah and Lucas Hale, and Michael Hale. He also had seven great-grandchildren. His cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. And uh, his family wrote a, a very lovely obituary for him. And you can find it on the Find a Grave page with his uh, memorial and pictures. And uh, it said at the end, Al's down-home friendliness, caring, and sense of humor made him well-known and respected by all who crossed his path except one. And that one was James Allen Coddington, who was born March 22nd, 1972 uh, in Oklahoma, I believe, but I didn't find anything confirming that. His parents were Gil, uh, Bill Coddington and Gayla Hood. He had at least eight siblings. He had a prior crimes of armed robbery. He also had juvenile offenses that weren't detailed anywhere. And uh, his victim was Albert Troy Hale, who was a friend of his family, a friend of his, a co-worker, uh, a person who helped him pay for drug rehab. Um, and so uh, a person who would buy groceries for him, uh, a person who would do whatever he could to help him. So uh, makes, in my book, Coddington a pretty shitty person. On Yeah, that's... It's all murders tragic, but when you see somebody who had, you know, went so far to help somebody, mm -hmm. it's truly remarkable how these people can just turn on them and don't have any sort of, not even a soul. Yeah. Um, so that is, uh, the crime occurred in Oklahoma City, uh, Oklahoma County, uh, at Albert Troy Hale's home. Coddington, a relaxed drug addict, a relapsed drug addict, had been on a cocaine binge and was desperate for money. He robbed a convenience store, which didn't yield enough, so he went to Al Hale to borrow money to fund his cocaine binge. Mr. Hale had previously lent money to Coddington and had also helped pay for drug rehab for Coddington, who was a friend and co-worker. Coddington watched TV with Mr. Hale for an hour or two then smoked crack in his bathroom. When Coddington asked for money, Mr. Hale refused, likely because he knew Coddington was using drugs again. Mr. Hale told Coddington to leave his house. On the way out, Coddington saw a claw hammer lying on a counter in the kitchen, picked it up, and struck Mr. Hale at least three times in the head with it. Coddington then stole $525 from Mr. Hale's pocket and left him lying on the floor. Coddington believed Mr. Hale was dead when he left the house, but he was wrong. A bloody trail through the house tracked Mr. Hale's movements after Coddington's attack. First, he went to the bathroom to try to clean himself up, then to his bedroom. He was frowned later by his son, Ron, lying in a blood-soaked bed, moaning in pain and unable to speak. He died 24 hours later. Coddington robbed five more convenience stores for money, and was picked up at his apartment two days later. Uh, he was arrested in South Oklahoma City, Oklahoma at his apartment. He was charged with first-degree murder and robbery with a dangerous weapon. His trial 
um, took place in 2003 before the Honorable Judge Jerry D. Bass. The counsel for the state was Fern Smith and Christy Reed from the Oklahoma County DA's office. And of course, as part of the propaganda, they they raised the specter of Bill Macy, um, who was such a horrible, horrible person because he got so many death penalty convictions during his tenure as the district attorney in Oklahoma County. Um, however, I did not find Mr. Macy's name on one piece of paper or opinion or decision in this case. So while Mr. Macy was the district attorney at the time, he did not have a hand in Coddington's trial or any of his appeals or resentencing. Um, counsel for the accused was Tamar Spradlin and Tim Wilson, who were members of the public defender's office. The guilt innocence phase of his trial took place between approximately April 21st, 2003 and May 1st, 2003. And he was tried. Count one was first degree murder. Count two was robbery with a dangerous weapon. And essentially this was a capital murder because Mr. Hale died during a robbery. Um, and the verdict was guilty. The aggravators alleged by the state in the first trial or first sentencing phase actually were previously convicted of a felony involving the use or threat of violence. And that was because, um, the robberies that Coddington had committed, he had been convicted by the time he was tried. Yeah, this is not a good person. Or he had pled guilty, and he may have pled guilty to the robberies. I'm not sure, although um, given the fact that uh, he he challenged his confession to the police, I don't know that he was necessarily a guilty plea to the robberies. Uh, we'll talk about that during his appeal. Um and he, the state also alleged that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel. Um, and this was based on there was there in the in the initial direct appeal, there were some very graphic descriptions of what happened to Mr. Hale, which I didn't and I won't repeat here, but um, it was not a it was not a um, quiet, easy death for Mr. Hale. Oh, no, it's horrible and um the jury sentence which was uh rendered on may 8th 2003 was death on count one and life without parole on count two the robbery uh coddington was formally sentenced on august 4th 2003 and the judge entered a formal sentence of death on count one and life without prison on count two uh, the case went to direct appeal, and he Coddington was represented by Andrea Miller and Emma Rolls, who was part of the Federal Public Defender's Office. And it may be that her name is on the direct appeal because she came in later, um, so not necessarily – she was not necessarily hands-on during his direct appeal. And counsel for the state was W.A. Drew Edmondson, who was the attorney general, and Seth Branham, who uh, was an assistant attorney general, and he took the lead 
The uh, appellant's brief was filed on November 8, 2004, and he raised multiple propositions of error. It's kind of weird because the Oklahoma, they only, they don't necessarily discuss every proposition of error raised. So sometimes you'll see propositions one through five and then propositions 10 through 15, but there'll be multiple in the middle that you don't even know what they are because in the appellate opinion, they're not, they're not cited or referred to. Um, and that's okay. the case in this one. Interesting. He had like 20 propositions. So you may there. not know what they are unless they Correct. comment on them. Uh, and, and now most of the briefing is available online, but in this particular case, this briefing precedes the availability of online records. I could, I could write to the uh, Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals and get those documents. Uh, I could possibly find them in uh, federal appellate records or federal district court records. But in this particular case, because of what I intended to do, I didn't go down that rabbit hole. So um, in his first direct appeal, he challenged the admissibility of his confession and claimed that his waiver of Miranda was unknowing and involuntary because he was um, high, sleep-deprived, hungry, and suicidal at the time of his interrogation. Uh, that was Proposition 1. He challenged the limitations of his one of his mitigation experts' testimony uh, the, the expert proposed to testify that Coddington could not have formed the requisite intent of malice of forethought due to his intoxication, cocaine intoxication, at the time of uh, the murder, which deprived him of his 5th, 6th, and 14th Amendment rights to present a defense. He also raised a, an allegation that the victim impact and evidence admitted at trial was improper. That was Proposition 5. Proposition 6 dealt with the um, testimony of three prosecution witnesses as to the details of the crime scene and the victim's condition, which were cumulative and unfairly prejudicial. Um, he That was Proposition 6. Proposition 7 was that the sufficiency of the evidence, uh, there was insufficient evidence supporting the first-degree murder conviction regarding the element of malice aforethought. Uh, the next group of propositions dealt with jury issues. Um, he alleged in Proposition 2 that the state used preemptory jury challenges to exclude five minority jurors from jury in violation of Batson and that there was an inattentive sleeping juror who was allowed to remain on the jury. Now, this is interesting because Coddington is white and his victim was white. So the exclusion of minority jurors uh, was, I don't think, raised at trial. He didn't make a Batson claim right, at trial. He didn't. Um, and I, but I think this is being made in the mind of his counsel at the time was that uh, minority jurors are less likely to vote for the death penalty. And there's probably no evidence of that. It's just an emotional plea. 
correct. Or some some American bar or anti-death penalty study has told them this. Yeah, because I mean, in reality, that's the whole point is you don't want racism to creep in. That's the only reason that we say we have to have, you know, only black defendants can be convicted by black jurors. There's never anything about how they vote. Right. So this feels like a lay, I mean, a, a desperate Hail Mary. Yeah. And then the proposition three was that the court failed to replace an inattentive sleeping juror who was sick, and that was an abuse of discretion. Um, this then he raised second stage issues, uh, and this is where it gets kind of murky. Proposition eight was that a, a a videotape of his mother's statement was improperly uh, precluded from admission at the punishment phase. Coddington's mother was incarcerated in the medical ward of a federal prison with heart problems. And what happened was the state didn't object and cooperated in obtaining the statement on videotape. But then when it came time for the admission of that videotape at trial, they objected to its admission. And so um, or they objected to admission of the entire videotape and, and only agreed to the admission of portions of the tape. Um, then I don't know what propositions 9 through 13 were because they're not cited not or referred to. And then proposition 14 was that there was an instructional error due to a confusing jury instruction regarding mitigating evidence. Basically, um, it was an instruction that might have led the jury to believe that they had to find all mitigating evidence, all mitigating factors beyond a reasonable doubt when that's not the law. Um, but I, I, I'm not really clear on that. So I'm going to let that. There was a, there was a bad jury instruction basically. Mm. And then also that um, proposition 20 was that Coddington argued that he received ineffective assistance of counsel at both stages of his trial. Um, the, the appellee, the state, filed an, a, a response brief on March 8th, 2005. There was oral argument on, March, on November 8th, 2005. And then the court ordered supplemental authorities be filed on November 18th, 2005. And I think that this is because they were um, basically agreed that the sentencing phase of the trial, there was error that required that the death sentence be vacated. Um, and that they rendered an opinion on August 6, 2006, essentially affirming the conviction of the two, the on both counts, affirming the sentence on the robbery count and vacating for resentencing the death sentence. The court held that Coddington's 14th Amendment rights were violated when the trial court excluded the videotape examination of defendant's mother from evidence during sentencing, and therefore his death sentence was reversed. Uh, they also found that the jury was improperly instructed to disregard relevant mitigating evidence, uh, I think if they didn't find it existed beyond a reasonable doubt. 
Uh, a writ was filed to the United States Supreme Court on December 21st, 2006, but that petition was denied. And so the portions of his conviction and his robbery sentence, those became final on April 16th, 2007. However, there was a resentencing trial. Um, for that, Coddington was represented again by the Public Defender's Office by attorneys Kathy Hammerston and Faustine Curry, and the state was represented by uh, Oklahoma County Assistant DA Sandra Elliott and Suzanne Lister, and I believe that this is after Macy was no longer the Oklahoma County DA, but I could be wrong, and hopefully if I am, Amy Kingry or Jennifer Harmon will correct <laughs> Somebody me. will tell you. <laughs> um, the the reach sentencing dealt solely with the uh, punishment. The um, the the guilt at the murder trial or the guilt at of the murder and robbery were not retried. Um, that took place between June 9th, two thousand eight, and June sixteenth, two thousand eight. And at that time, the state's aggravators were heinous, atrocious, and cruel, or exceptionally yeah. heinous, atrocious, and cruel, that the murder was committed to avoid arrest or prosecution, uh, that Coddington had previously been convicted of a felony involving the use or threat of violence, and that Coddington posed a continuing threat to society. Um, the jury found that Coddington, again, sentenced him to death. And I believe they found the heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and that the murder was committed to avoid arrest or prosecution, and that he had previously been convicted. But they didn't find the continuing threat aggravator. So, um, but I don't have notes as to what aggravators they found. Um, there was another direct appeal of the resentencing, and again, Public Defender's Office of Oklahoma City represented him, um, attorneys Marva Banks and Andrea Miller. Uh, Andrea Miller represented him on the prior direct appeal as well, and the state was represented by Drew Edmondson and Seth Branham of the Attorney General's Office. Um, this one, the issues were... Uh, fewer because it only dealt with resentencing there were jury selection issues raised uh, in proposition two that the trial court violated his right to a fair and impartial jury by removing prospective jurors for cause over objection and absent proper questioning before it was adequately established that those jurors could not follow the law and consider the death penalty isn't that one of those that, like we talked about, like an effective counsel, aren't those raised on basically every single appeal? It feels well, like? this one is basically the defense bar is going to continue arguing, even though they're very rarely successful, that uh, even though a juror, a potential juror says, I'm not going to consider the death penalty. I cannot consider the death penalty. I'm morally opposed to it. What they want to do is they want to try and question the juror until they get the juror to say, okay, I'm, uh, yeah, I'll consider it, even though the juror really won't consider it. Um, kind of telegraph to a juror who is not fit to serve that 
um, say you're going to consider it, and then you don't have to consider it. And they're never going to be successful. If a juror says, I am morally opposed to the death penalty, they are not fit to serve because they will not be fair to the state and they will not consider the death penalty among the sentencing options. And that's just not, they're never going to be successful, but they continue right. arguing it because they're hoping that at some point it's going to make its way to the Supreme Court and there's going to be a Supreme Court that is liberal enough to say, okay, even if you're morally opposed, you can still serve on a capital jury. Got it. So um, that is what, what they hope will happen. They also, in Proposition 3, he raised uh, the claim that the trial court violated his right to a fair and impartial jury by denying him the use of jury questionnaires and or individual sequestered voir dire, um, and that the trial court denied his right, his pretrial request for individual voir dire and the use of jury questionnaires. Um, then they also argued that in Proposition 4 that the excusal of potential jurors for cause on grounds that they could not impose the death penalty violated Oklahoma law. Um, they raised in Proposition 1 a uh, an error involving the trial court's presence during proceedings. Apparently, the trial court left the bench during the presentation of videotape of Gayla Hood's testimony. That was the full testimony video from Coddington's mother that was offered in mitigation. Coddington argued that the trial court's absence amounted to a structural error which affected the entire trial and required reversal without showing a prejudice. Um, then in, he also raised other trial issues in Proposition 5 that uh, his right to notice and an opportunity to be heard were violated by the state's reliance on statements he made while testifying in his prior trial to avoid the uh, to support the avoid arrest aggravating circumstances. Proposition 6 that the state presented insufficient evidence to prove that he killed Hale in order to avoid arrest or prosecution. Um, and he asked the court to vacate that aggravating circumstance. Um, then in Proposition 7, he asked the court to reconsider its holding in Hogan versus State that Jeopardy did not attach when the court dismissed or the jury did not find an aggravating circumstance. And I think that was the... Um, uh, what was it, the uh, continuing threat? Because at the prior trial, they didn't find that. Hmm. So he's trying to say Jeopardy attached and they can't allege that aggravator at the resentencing. Uh, Proposition 8, Coddington argued that the omission of his juvenile offenses to support the continuing threat aggravating circumstance violated the Eighth Amendment, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. Proposition 9, uh, use of nonviolent felony convictions to prove prior violent felony uh, violated his right to a fair trial and reliable sentencing proceeding. Those seem and to he, be contradictory. Why is he saying in eight that his juvenile offenses 
violate the Eighth Amendment, but then he's saying in nine previous offenses that weren't juvenile, but previous felonies violated the right to the fair trial. Those seem to be the same, generally the the same thing. The Eighth Amendment is cruel and unusual punishment, and they use the cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, That was the reason that sentenced that executing a person who committed a crime as a juvenile. Okay. The Eighth Amendment was the basis for uh, finding that 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 a juvenile, a person who committed a crime as a juvenile could not be sentenced to death and executed. I gotcha. So, um, and then the, the fair trial uh, and reliable sentencing proceeding was the use of nonviolent felony convictions to prove prior a uh, conviction of prior violent felonies. Gotcha. And they should have been re- re- excluded in the required Brewer hearing. Um, Coddington also claimed in Proposition 10 that the overbroad application of heinous, atrocious, and cruel aggravating circumstance rendered the aggravator invalid under the federal and Oklahoma constitutions. In Proposition 11, he argued that the trial court erred in allowing the presentation of cumulative evidence, which unfairly prejudiced him and resulted in an unfair sentencing determination. Then he also had an instruction error alleged in Proposition 13 that reversible error occurred when the trial court modified uh, one of the um, uniform jury instructions, eliminating the reasonable hypothesis standard from the instruction and resulting in the jury being improperly instructed on the applicable standard of proof. Proposition 14 dealt with uh, a jury was not instructed, the jury was not instructed that it must find that any aggravating factors must outweigh the mitigating circumstances beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, And then he raised errors related to the entire trial uh, that the willful and accidental incidents of prosecutor misconduct from Wadir through closing argument deprived him of a fair sentencing proceeding that uh, he received ineffective assistance of trial counsel uh, in that trial counsel failed to present mitigating evidence and failed to object when the trial court left the bench during Hood's videotape. Uh, He raised previously decided appellate issues in Proposition 16, uh, eight claims challenging jury instructions, the constitutionality of Oklahoma's capital punishment process, and the manner of execution. And then he raised accumulated error in Proposition's 17 and 18, uh, that individual trial errors, which may have been found harmless, required sentencing relief when considered together, and that the court um, should modify his sentence under its mandatory sentence review authority. In On May 13, 2011, the court uh, affirmed the sentence. He filed a writ on September 13, 2011, and his sentence became final on November 14, 2011, when the U.S. Supreme Court denied his writ. He moved on to state post-conviction and was represented by Laura M. Arledge at Oklahoma Indigent Defender Service in Norman. Uh, E. Scott Pruitt was then the attorney general and 
Seth Branham continued to represent the state of Oklahoma. The court, of course, was the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. And the way what happens in the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals is they look at the application and the motion for discovery, if any, and motion for evidentiary hearing, if any, and the issues raised, and they determine whether an evidentiary hearing will assist them in uh, making a determination as to whether to grant or deny relief. If they determine that a, an evidentiary hearing is necessary, they remand it to the trial court to hold that hearing. And then the trial court renders findings of fact and conclusions of law and sends it back to the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals uh, with a recommendation whether relief should be granted or denied. Um, they also determine whether discovery should take place, which would include depositions, uh, written questions, interrogatories, requests for production. Um, and if that's uh, necessary for them to make their determination to kind of supplement the trial records, they will order that to be done. Um, an initial petition was filed on September 18, 2003, uh, but that was dismissed in September, on September 28, 2006, when the death sentence was vacated and the case was remanded. A, uh, another initial application was filed on October 1st, 2008, uh, after the resentencing and the final, uh, that became final. Well, no, it was before it became final, uh, but it was filed nonetheless, I guess because you have to file within a certain period of time, even if you're still pursuing direct appeal, because there are issues you can't raise on direct appeal. Uh, the issues raised uh, as best I could tell without um, a, an actual opinion was uh, ineffective assistance of counsel at trial and resentencing and on the first and second direct appeals. Uh, and those included failure to raise meritorious issues in direct appeal in the first direct appeal, failure to investigate jurors, structural errors during trial, failure to voir dire and attentive juror uh, the inattentive juror during the first trial, pardon me, failure to follow ABA guidelines for capital defense, failure to raise prosecutorial misconduct, failure to prevent admission of autopsy results through a medical examiner who did not perform the autopsy, and failure to show the jury the biological and social factors connected to Coddington's addiction and drug abuse. Uh, proposition two was cumulative errors on direct appeal and post-conviction rendered the proceeding resulting in Coddington's death sentence arbitrary, capricious, and unreliable. Um, now, interestingly, while Mr. While his advocates claim he's never denied killing Mr. Hale, um, but he certainly is seeking to blame Mr. Hale's death on factors outside of his control. Right. Again, it's not my fault as because though, of the hashtag exactly. crack. Uh, um, you know, that he was so intoxicated and that's why he killed Mr. Hale. And so it's really, he's not really liable, uh, culpable or responsible for Mr. Hale's death. Um, and he's also challenging 
the the result of the first trial that found him guilty of murder and robbery because the inattentive the inattentive juror he's challenging their presence on the jury during the guilt innocence phase not just the the sentencing phase um a response was ordered by the oklahoma court of criminal appeals from the state on june 2nd 2011 so it looks like the proceedings kind of stalled until the the resolution of the direct appeal in the state court arena um on august 23rd 2011 the court of criminal appeals rendered a decision they denied coddington's application for post-conviction relief uh, and his motion for evidentiary hearing and discovery and his motion reserving his right to supplement his original application they also uh, granted his motion to file an oversized application, I think, which is um, kind of an administrative thing. He, they, they considered the entire application, so they granted him leave to file. It, what he filed was oversized. And um, pursuant to Rule uh, 3.15 of the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, they ordered that the mandate was to be issued with the filing of the decision on August 23rd, 2011. Sometimes with the mandate, a period of 30 days or 60 days or 90 days uh, expires before the mandate actually issues. Coddington then moved on to federal habeas claim, uh, federal habeas, uh, federal court for federal habeas relief. Uh, his attorneys were Susanna Gatoni and Seth Day at Hall is still in Oklahoma City. So I suspect that this is a private pro bono law firm or a private law firm that represented him for whatever the federal system would compensate them to do so. Um, the warden, uh, who was royal at the time of filing, but I think the warden changed a couple of times once the proceedings got started uh, was Jennifer B. Miller at the Attorney General's Office in Oklahoma. Um, the venue was the United States District Court for the Western Dist District of Oklahoma. Uh, Chief Judge at that time was the Honorable Joe Heaton. A motion to appoint counsel was filed on December 12, 2011. Uh, Susanna Gantoni was appointed on December 14th, 2011. A case management conference was held on January 17th, 2012, uh, at which time um, a motion for uh, Coddington's motion for, I think indigent defense was denied and deadlines were set in the case. Um, an ex parte budget litigation conference was also held on that date, and the budget was approved as submitted. On February 9, 2012, um, Ms. Gatoni filed a motion to appoint co-counsel, and Coddington was appointed Seth Day. On February 13, 2012, he, he was appointed as co-counsel. A motion for extension of time 
was filed on August 30th, 2012 by Seth Day. So his petition for a writ of habeas corpus has not even been filed at this point. And he's seeking more time to file it. Um, so the argument or the claim that these proceedings or executions in Oklahoma are rushed somehow. Yeah, it's it makes it kind of ridiculous because he's in federal court. His attorneys are going to be paid by the federal indigent defense system. Apparently, and uh, he hasn't even filed his writ. Well, that's the thing we saw, right, in the Glossop case. Like, oh, these things are rushed. It's like it's been 20 years. Like, there, there's always the same playbook rush and effective counsel, jury misconduct. Right. So on uh, August 31st, 2012, a minute order directing the state to file an uh, expedited response to the motion for extension of time was entered, uh, requesting that they file a response before on or before September 6, 2012. And that's common in, in federal court, uh, even in civil and criminal um, proceedings. A response in opposition was filed by the state on September 4th. Uh, Coddington was allowed to file a reply in support of his motion for extension of time on September 5th. And on September 6, 2012, his motion for extension of time was granted by the court. On November 13, 2012, Coddington filed his petition for writ of habeas corpus, raising multiple grounds. Uh, I don't know what grounds one through three were because they were not cited or referred to in the opinion. Um, also, I've seen in the structure of some petitions, grounds one through three actually are the facts, um, the standard of review and analysis of the subsequent grounds enumerated. So sometimes grounds one through three are not actually complaints about the process. Um, they're just facts and standard of review to be applied by the court and an analysis of the claims. Uh, ground four that is enumerated and cited is the trial court's exclusion of expert testimony regarding petitioner's inability to form malice of forethought um, was one of the grounds raised. Ground five was the admission admissibility of petitioner's videotape confession. So he's still challenging the admission of evidence against him in which he confessed to killing Albert Hale. Um, so in, in my mind, that in and of itself shows that he does not accept responsibility for Albert Hale's murder. Exactly. That is how I interpret it. If you're of trying course. to say that evidence of my guilt was improperly admitted, then you're not accepting responsibility. You're no, trying to get the guilt verdict, the guilty verdict uh, thrown out. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he does not accept it at all. So, um, and then, but he's he's remorseful. Yeah, he raised a double jeopardy argument, but I think that was as to one of the aggravators because the initial, the first trial, the sentencing jury at that trial did not find that aggravator existed, 
And so he believes that the state should never have been able to use that aggravator in resentencing. And so he's presenting it as a double jeopardy issue. Um, he also raised ineffective assistance of trial counsel. Uh, and the, the precise, um, the, the opinion that I had did not really go into all of the issues or all of the allegations of error. Uh, it went into some of them, but I didn't repeat them here because relief was denied. Um, and and this was meant to be a four-person case show or a four-case show. Um, mm -hmm. He raised an error, a ground of error um, as to the medical examiner's testimony, the sleepy juror. And this is kind of a, one of the jurors during the first trial um, was noted on one day in the morning to seem to be um, dozing off. It was brought to the judge's attention. The judge spoke to the juror. The juror said she wasn't feeling right, but she thought it had something to do with her blood sugar. They took a break, went to lunch. And when they came back, um, the judge did observe her and didn't notice any didn't notice anything further issues that day. Yeah, so she probably yawned. And so now she's the a trial. sleepy juror. Well, she may have been closing her eyes. She may have been, her head may have been nodding like she was falling asleep. Um, but again, they monitored and, and Coddington's counsel did not make any further statements on the record during that afternoon or on subsequent days that there were any issues with that juror. Um, so the judge did not remove her from the panel. Um, they also, in, in ground 10, he raised the issue of evidence supporting the murder to avoid arrest and prosecution of the aggravating circumstances. And that was basically a complaint that his testimony in the first trial was used against him in a second trial. But guess what, babe? That's how testifying works. Right. Um, you take that chance when you get on the stand. Exactly. Even if you decide in your next trial that you're not going to testify, that doesn't mean your testimony didn't happen the first time. Exactly. Yep. Um, he also in ground 11 raised a Roper versus Simmons argument regarding the admission of evidence of his juvenile offenses presented in support of the continuing threat aggravating circumstances so basically he's saying i was a juvenile when i was committed those crimes so they can't be used to support my death sentence um he raised a juror misconduct claim which i was never quite able to figure out exactly what misconduct there was because i don't have the direct appeal that really would have illuminated that issue for me um i other than it wasn't cited in the direct appeal of the first trial. It wasn't cited in the direct appeal from the second resentencing trial. And so I don't know exactly what he claims. And I didn't download those federal court pleadings, even though they would have been available. Um, if we ever look at Coddington again, maybe I'll go down that rabbit hole. Um, and then he filed an amended writ petition for writ of habeas corpus on November 14th, 
2012 um, and a motion for discovery, a motion of evidentiary hearing were also filed. Um, evidentiary hearing and discovery were not granted right away. Uh, the court did issue an opinion on September 15, 2016, denying relief and denying the request for evidentiary hearing and discovery. Uh, and basically what the, the judge found, having concluded petitioner's arguments do not establish a right to relief on any of his issues, uh, his petition for writ of habeas corpus is denied as our request for discovery and evidentiary hearing. Judgment will be entered accordingly. The case then went on uh, October 10th, 2016. He filed a notice of appeal seeking to appeal to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeal. Um, he filed a designation of record on appeal in that court on October 26, 2016. Uh, a decision in that case was rendered on May 12th, 2020, denying affirming denial of the petition for habeas relief and a mandate issued from that court on October 7th, 2020. So that was five months. Uh, there's petitions for rehearing and uh, the court decides whether to rehear or to amend their opinion. Um, so the mandate issued five months later. So suggesting that some consideration was given to Coddington's uh, claims I didn't download the the uh, docket for either the well I downloaded the docket for federal court but I didn't download the docket for the 10th circuit so I don't know exactly what the timeline of that was. Uh, he also filed a petition for writ of certiorari uh, on February 26, 2021 asserting uh, the single issue of limitation of Dr. Smith's testimony that Coddington was incapable of forming the required mens rea violated his Sixth Amendment right to present a defense. Now, while he had raised the issue of the exclusion of that testimony, denying him a right to a fair trial, he never presented it as a, uh, a Sixth Amendment right to present a defense violation. Can you Until, explain that in a little? Oh, go ahead. Okay, he he raised it in that way at the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeal, but he never presented it as a a Sixth Amendment or an Oklahoma constitutional violation as a right to present a defense. He basically ordered that it was he basically argued that it was improperly excluded, but never that he was denied a right to present a defense. So the state court, when they looked at it, they looked at it, whether it was admissible, whether it was uh, ineffective assistance for his counsel not to argue that on direct appeal, um, not to successfully challenge the failure to admit it on direct appeal, but he never called it a, a denial of a right to present a, a defense. And so that's a distinction that means the Oklahoma court never got a chance to address it as a constitutional issue. They basically addressed it as an evidentiary issue. And one of the things was, was he prejudiced by the, what it was, a, 
I'm, I'm getting tongue tied here. Um, the court in Oklahoma looked at it. Would it have changed the outcome? If it had been admitted and they found it wouldn't have. And so they never had a chance to look at it as a constitutional violation. And you have to give the state a chance to resolve it mm. on those grounds before the federal courts can determine whether the state made the right decision. Right. Or whether the state made a reasonable decision. And so basically, uh, that was the state's argument on in its brief in opposition that the issue before the Supreme Court as a, a constitutional violation had never been presented or passed by the courts below, that the issue was not compelling, that Coddington's case was a poor vehicle for resolution of the issue, and his arguments were without merit. Uh, the brief also pointed out that the issue as presented to the Supreme Court was only raised in a reply brief filed at the Tenth Circuit Court of Criminal Court of Appeal, which was the federal court, not state court. Um, on June 7, 2021, uh, Coddington's writ petition for writ of certiorari was denied. And um, in an order entered by the I think he went back to federal court. Uh, there was an order entered appointing the federal public defender to serve as lead counsel for Coddington in connection with executive or other clemency proceedings. And an entry of appearance was filed by Emma Rolls. Um, then going to Coddington's execution, we're kind of kind of look at it, even though it's out of order, um, look at the execution process to kind of it gives i think a clearer picture of how these cases can go 25 years before an inmate is actually executed and i think it's more illuminating if you look at it step by step step toward execution rather than going back to 2008 saying okay well he got an execution date but it was stayed for this reason so um of course, in Oklahoma, there's apparently a pro forma date it, given by the Court of Criminal Appeals, I think, to in, ensure that the process of post-conviction claims proceeds in a timely fashion rather than uh, whenever the inmate or the attorneys for the inmate get around to it. So a date was set on June 2nd, 2008, which was September 2nd, 2008. A stay of that date was issued on July 21st, 2008 by the, by the Court of Criminal Appeals when Coddington's post-conviction claims process began. Of course, we know between October 30th, 2015 and February 3rd, 2020, there were not going to be any executions in Oklahoma because of the need to rework the Oklahoma protocol. All the Glossop stuff, all the Glossop. Correct. Suit. And there had been in 2014, there was the attempt to challenge 
directly to the U.S. Supreme Court the use of midazolam, which was ultimately not successful. But uh, the error at and during Charles Warner's execution with the use of potassium acetate required the the state of Oklahoma to rework its protocol to ensure that that didn't happen again. So their notice of amended protocol was issued on February 13, 2020. Um, and then, of course, Glossop versus Chandler, they um, that case heated up because the in, several inmates and Coddington was one of them challenged the new protocol and the constitutionality of the use of midazolam as the first drug in the protocol. In August of 2021, on August 11th, Judge Frio ordered a trial in the prisoner's lawsuit. And that was during the summary judgment process. I think we talked about it more in depth during the gloss of episodes. Yep. During the summary judgment process, Judge Frio dismissed some plaintiffs from the case because they refused to, to choose an alternative method of execution. Julius Jones was one of them. Right. Coddington was one, but Coddington filed a challenge to that um, because apparently it was an inadvertent error on his counsel's part. And so uh, on August 25th, 2021, because he had been dismissed from the federal lawsuit, the state did file a notice seeking an execution date of February 10th, 2022. On August 26, 2021, uh, Coddington's counsel filed an objection to that notice, asserting that they were challenging Judge Frio's order uh, under Rule 59E, I think. Um, on September 23rd, 2021, even though the challenge was going, it hadn't been ruled on. Uh, so the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals did set the execution date for March 10th, 2022. And then on uh, December, uh, October 12th, 2021, uh, Judge Frio entered an order reinstating Coddington as a plaintiff in the lethal injection challenge. And a stay was issued by Judge Frio in December on December 23rd, 2021. And apparently the state and Coddington entered into a joint stipulation uh, to that order on December 23rd, 2021. So Coddington's execution was that was set for March 10th, 2022 was stayed. And then um, the uh, trial of the lethal injection protocol and the use of midazolam was held in February of 2022, and I think March of 2022. On June 6th, as we discussed in, at length with Glossop, uh, Judge Frio did issue, and by the way, I may be mispronouncing his name because I live in a place where we pronounce French appearing, names appeared to be spelled <laughs> in the French way. We pronounced them in the French way. Um <laughs> Sorry, citizens. It's probably it's probably free. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it might be free. 
I don't know. Yeah, but um, that sounds better. The French always I, sounds better than English. French. I say Frio. And um, again, Amy and Je- uh, Jennifer will hopefully correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Judge Frio ruled that the plaintiffs had fallen short of clearing the bar set by the Supreme Court um, under the Eighth Amendment claims, and that consequently uh, the Eighth Amendment did not stand in the way of Oklahoma's protocol and the use of midazolam. Um, and he made findings of fact about the use of midazolam and its reliability. And he made findings of fact as to the claims related to John Grant's execution and the execution of, pardon me, the other four prisoners who were not not parties to the suit and therefore could be executed by the state of Oklahoma. And on uh, June 10th, the state filed a notice pursuant to uh, Oklahoma Statute 22 OS 2021, Section 1001.1D, to seek execution dates for 25 inmates over the next two years. And they put Coddington first because Coddington had exhausted all state and federal challenges to his conviction and sentence and uh the lethal injection challenge had been decided and um the state of oklahoma was successful now interestingly it is on appeal to the 10th circuit but they apparently have not sought a stay of any dates in the 10th circuit so it's not required that the state not execute anybody while this issue is on appeal. And I think a part of that is because um, it's really Judge Frio's decision is based on Supreme Court law or Supreme Court case law. And so the Tenth Circuit can't exactly turn around and reverse the Supreme Court. They can only maybe say, okay, Judge Frio made a mistake on this issue, so he has to go back and re, 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 you know, refix it. Um, so they saw at Coddington, they put Coddington at the head of the list, number one. And the court, they sought the date of August 25th, 2022 as the date of his execution. Glossop was second at um, September 2022. Benjamin Cole is third on in October. Um, Richard Fairchild is fourth in November. And then John Hansen is fifth in December. So that's 2022. Um, and we'll talk over the next few weeks. Hopefully we'll be able to do an episode a week. We can't do next week, but hopefully after next week, we'll be able to do Cole, Fairchild, Hanson, three weeks in a row. So our listeners, instead of going weeks without an episode, we'll have three episodes. Three right in a row. Three right in a row. So cross your fingers, folks. (laughs) Let's hope that Kyle and I can pull it off. (laughs) Oklahoma's Um, not messing around. It's gotten down to business after the lawsuit. It is. No. And that's, I mean, that's similar to Arkansas. They had several years where they were reworking their protocol 
And once they got it reworked, they scheduled eight and executed four. Um, and then there was a challenge, a, a challenge made, but it was unsuccessful. And so they probably will also restart their process soon. They haven't, but I'll look into that next week while we're off. You know, I thought it was interesting, though. I know we didn't talk about it, but, you know, I thought it was interesting. You know, his last words, he said nothing about Mr. Hale. Mm -hmm. I find, I mean, yeah, I just find that interesting. Like, if you're actually contrite, it feels like I understand thinking the people, thanking the people that have taken care of you and appreciated you, but no expression of remorse, no you know prayers and for the family just let's let's put a pin himself. let's put a pin in that because i have i have thoughts as well but i want to get to the clemency hearing before i unleash the thoughts upon <laughs> sounds fair everyone and i i and i i appreciate i understand and you're right and in none of these things does he really express what I've ever considered to be true remorse. I mean, we've talked about that in other cases, you know, um, I guess I would feel like if I was truly innocent, I would always, I'd be, you know, I'm feel horrible for the victim's families. Like, I'm so sorry. I, I feel terrible and they never do. Right. They only use the victim's families as a prop. They never mm -hmm. actually show true remorse. Yeah. So on June 13th, 2022, Coddington's attorneys, probably taking something of a page out of Richard Glossop's book, filed an objection to notice regarding the setting of execution date. And in it, without a scrap of case law or statutory support, they argued that because of the 2021 notice and the setting of the execution date that didn't go forward in March of 2022, that Coddington actually deserved to be at the back of the line for execution rather than the first in line for execution. Because they made the successful Rule 59 challenge to the dismissal from the federal drug challenge, lethal injection cha challenge lawsuit. That was their reasoning. Um, the state filed a response in which they refuted Coddington's prematurity arguments and pointing out that his position was unsupported by any case law or statute. Um, on, that was on June 14th. And on June 14th, the Coddington's attorneys filed a motion withdrawing their objection, but asking to hold the request in abeyance until the parole board was shown to be in compliance with 57 OS section 332-1B. I think that was right around the time Kelly Doyle um, resigned. So now they're saying the state shouldn't set a date until the pardon and parole board is in compliance and can do a clemency hearing. which is yet another ridiculous and unsupported argument. 
on June, uh, July 1st, of course, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeal denied that request and denied the objection and set Co uh, Coddington's execution date for August 25th, 2022. On July 25th, 2022, Coddington's advocates filed a clemency petition. And basically, they argued that while on death row, Coddington had attained and maintained sobriety. He'd attained and maintained clear conduct for more than 15 years. He was remorseful for his actions against Mr. Hale and for the pain Mr. Hale suffered. He was remorseful for the pain he caused Mr. Hale's family. The 139-page petition also highlighted Coddington's family history of drug and alcohol abuse, criminal activity, and violence. It also cited abuse and neglect suffered by Coddington at the hands of his parents. Not one word of that was contrite, true remorse for Albert Hale or Albert Hale's family. And in fact, it blames the drug use for Coddington's actions on the day he murdered Albert Hale. It also portrays him as someone who didn't have a choice, who didn't stand a chance, even though Albert Hale tried to give Coddington a chance by paying for drug rehab. But Coddington chose, after rehab, to start using drugs again and to go on a binge and to rob convenience stores. And then when Albert Hale dared not to grant him his request for money because Mr. Hale knew he was using drugs and told him to leave, he bashed his head in with a hammer. And that's the drug's fault, not Coddington's. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, on August 3rd, 2022, Coddington appeared before the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board. And, you know, he said, I'm, I'm remorseful, but he used terms like, um, what happened to Mr. Hale? Uh, he was my friend and he lost his life because of it. You know, as though, as though he was removed from responsibility for his own actions. And I mean, they, you know, they talked about the horrid life, but they didn't talk about Albert Hale. What about Albert Hale's life? Did Albert Hale grow up in a silver spoon, getting everything he ever wanted? Household with parents who, you know, cuddled him and patted him on the head and never said no. And he was a model child who never got in trouble or never made mistakes. No, we know nothing about Albert Hale is a cipher because if the state tried to talk about Albert Hale, they would be accused of trying to get sympathy for the victim and told it's not about the victim. It's about James Coddington and how he's changed that you can behave in prison on death row where you don't have access to drugs is right, not exactly. an achievement in my mind. Yeah. You're a model prisoner in, in solitary confinement, 23 hours a day. Yeah. That's, a, that's well, amazingly he, hard to do. 
he apparently did have a position as an orderly. And he did impress COs and he did impress a former warden who believed he was a better person. And becoming a better person, that's all well and good, but that doesn't change the horrid act that you committed. And true remorse would be, I deserve the punishment I'm going to get. To me, if Coddington had said at that clemency hearing, I deserve to be executed for this crime, I would say give him clemency. Because that, to me, is true remorse. Yeah. If somebody says, I'm sorry, I What I'm going to get. Yeah, I deserve it. Yeah. I'm with you. It's like, you know what? I do deserve this. Eye for an eye. I did this. I I was under the influence of crack, but I still chose to take it. I still, at the end of the day, made that decision. Mm -hmm. But I'm remorseful, and I deserve this. I'm not going to appeal my sentence. I deserve to die, then yeah, I'm like, you do, you generally show remorse and I would be totally good with some clemency for those kinds of people, but right, that's never how it works. And there's a clip of him on YouTube and, and between now and now and our next, um, our next meeting, um, I would, I would encourage you to watch that. He cries, but he's crying for himself. He's not crying for what he did to Albert Hale. He's crying for himself because he doesn't want to die. And while I can understand I don't want to die because nobody does, still, you know, he doesn't, he still lacks the self-awareness that would be true remorse. And it's not what happened to Albert Hale. It's what I did to him. Right. He didn't lose his life. You killed him. You bashed his head in with a hammer because he wouldn't give you money to buy drugs, which what he was doing, what he felt was best for you. And yes, he was throwing you out of his house because you were probably being an asshole. You know, he didn't want to hear you begging for money. He didn't want to hear lies about why you needed money because you just smoked crack in his bathroom. And he probably knew it. Even though you thought you were slick and he didn't know. You know, so the board recommended three to two to grant clemency. Which, again, because he said what he knew they wanted to hear. And he made himself look like a victim. And I guess there are still some two liberal members on that pardon and parole board that are going to fall for a good song and dance when they get it. So, and I I, kind of hope she's not listening. Um, One of my friends on Twitter I think they're going to probably recommend it for Richard Glossop. And I'm hoping Governor Stitt has the brains and doesn't get a call from fucking Donald Trump and denies it. Because with the show that they're putting on in the media, these people are going to fall for it with Glossop. Yep. And I hate to say it, but it's true. 
Uh, and if Governor Stitt falls for it, I hope the people of Oklahoma vote his ass out of office and bring in somebody who has better sense. Because that's the second murderer that Governor Stitt is going to let off the hook. He's already let off Julius Jones. And, he, you know, if he lets off Richard Glossop, he needs to go. So, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't see that he has any true remorse. I don't believe in his speech to the clemency board. I don't believe in any of the materials in the clemency petition, even though I didn't read the whole 139 pages because it's just a sob fest for for Coddington. And all these strikes that he, you know, all these tribulations and trials he had to deal with. But you know what? We all have trials and tribulations, and it's how we deal with them as adults. He wasn't a juvenile when this crime was committed. He was 25 years old. He was no longer being abused by his parents. He was no longer being fed drugs and alcohol by his parents. He was no longer being fed drugs and alcohol by siblings. Um, you know, the choices he was making were his own. And they were choices. And so they were his choices and he suffers the consequences. That's how it goes. And yep. Absolutely. Off my soapbox before I fall and hurt myself. No, but that's right, though. I mean, there's some level of, you know, it's just like when you think about drunk drivers, it's like we still prosecute drunk drivers when they could say, well, it wasn't me. It was the alcohol, which you could argue is technically true, but you still made those decisions to get to that mm -hmm. point. So, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, I mean, it's just weird the double standards that we apply. You know, we just kind of move the we move the definition around all the time. But yes, agreed. Those kinds of substances will make you do bad things, but you as a person have to decide, am I going to choose or not choose mm -hmm. to take the substance? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had, he had been to rehab and he had gotten clean at one point for some period of time. And so he's the one who chose to fall off the wagon or to jump off the wagon. And then to snort the entire thing or mainline it or smoke it or whatever he, whatever he fucking did, he made that choice. And so, you know, that involved, it escalated to killing a man for $525. And the, the irony is that Mr. Hale kept larger sums of money in the house. And there was a, a significant amount of money in the house. But Coddington only took the $525 out of Mr. Hale's pocket. And then after that, continued robbing convenience stores. And this is another thing. Prior to Governor Stitt's denial, um, several people came out in the media including one of his robbery victims who believed he should get clemency. Um, but it's like, unless that person is a member of the Hale family, she needs to, to shut up. Yeah, Cause exactly. what he did may have, 
may have affected her. That yeah, he didn't I don't, hurt her. He didn't kill exactly, her. Exactly. Yeah. Don't care. Um, you have no right to talk just because your great uncle got robbed. Yeah. Well, she was she was a robbery victim. And I, I don't I don't I don't mean to diminish, but he didn't hurt her. Yeah, exactly. He scared he her. And you, it, which, it is yeah, a horrible it's experience. But yeah, there's a difference between being scared because somebody put a gun or knife in your face versus having your head beat in with a hammer. Let's don't equate the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we have to remember at some point, Mr. Hale regained consciousness and he went and tried to clean himself up. And then he ended up in his bed, unable to call for help in pain. And he was found by his son. And, um, later, I don't know how much later, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the timeline was. And died the next day in the hospital, never having regained consciousness. You know, he was moaning in pain and not, unable to speak by the time his son found him. Because with head injuries, your your condition gets progressively worse, but doesn't always result in a quick death. You know, um, what was it? And most, a lot of head injury victims... Um, you know, their bodies keep going when there's nothing left. There's no activity left in the brain. Right. And, and so, you know, they, they, they only die when their when their organs start to fail. If they're allowed to. So, um, it's not, it's not an easy way to go. And that's not what was done to James Coddington, I would point out. So vengeance is not vengeance, because vengeance would be doing to Coddington what he did to Albert Hale. Exactly, yeah, beating him, in the, beating him so, to death with a hammer, or at least halfway to death mm-hmm. with a hammer and letting him bleed out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I like I, I said, I think that the defense bar, and I think it would benefit them, they should actually encourage and welcome the state telling people about the victim and share about the victim because the victim becomes uh, uh, an afterthought in these cases. You know, this is a case that goes back to 1997. So there's no social media. There's no, you know, there's, there's, thankfully, I found an obituary that told me more about Mr. Hale than any of the court opinions. And thankfully, because his family did what, you know, some families in that, in those circumstances are almost unable to do is that they wrote about him and who he was as a person. And, and I have to say, he was a Navy veteran and he, he was born in 1923. So he served in World War II. In some form or fashion, he may not have been on the front lines, but, you know, in the Navy, he, he was eligible to serve during that time period. Um, because he would have been 18 years old in 1941 when, the, when America entered the war. 
Um, so he, you know, he deserves the utmost respect, but that's never mentioned. And again, the state has a fine line that they have to, to tread. So hopefully in some brief somewhere, they were able to, to give us more about, about Mr. Hale. But if they did, they probably met with, uh, with complaints from Coddington and Coddington's counsel. Exactly. So, uh, so Coddington was executed after Governor Stitt denied clemency. Um, and again, somebody from uh, a church group opposing capital punishment, uh, he was interviewed shortly after the decision was announced, and he was really mad because he didn't think Governor Stitt, Governor Stitt uh, gave reasons for the denial. Because I think Stitt's statement was, I've, I've looked at the facts and evidence, and I've decided to, you know, deny clemency. But he didn't give a reason. He didn't owe you a reason, dude. You know, the, the, the board didn't really give a reason. For They didn't say, well, because he had such a hard life, I think he deserves clemency. Or because he says he's sorry, I think he deserves. I mean, they just said, grant. So, you know, the, what's the, what reason did they give him clemency? Why did they give him clemency? It's all emotional. Yeah, it's all emotional. There's no, you can never find a rational reason to understand it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the execution was carried out uh, by the Department of Corrections at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. In his final words, Coddington thanked his family, friends, and lawyers, according to the media witnesses. Uh, He also made a cryptic statement to Emma Rolls, his attorney. Um, about something they're right i was listening to it right before you joined uh and i'm going to investigate it a little bit more but i think he might be trying to set up a claim about the use of midazolam Uh. with his attorney um and he also addressed it saying i don't blame you and i forgive you which proves that he really truly has no remorse to absolve Governor Stitt, who had nothing to do with why he was where he was. As though it was Governor Stitt's fault that he was where he was. And that shows you he doesn't have true remorse. He doesn't truly accept the consequences for his actions. And he doesn't truly accept that his actions are his. He still wants to believe and remove himself from the actions so it's he didn't do it it was the drugs um the state the the administration of the drugs began at 10:02 a.m and coddington was pronounced deceased at 10:16 a.m media witnesses didn't observe anything uh that suggested he was not that he was conscious when the mercurium broma uh the the mercurium the uh hand curium bromide, the second drug, uh, the paralytic, or the third drug, the potassium chloride, were administered. Um, They did remark that he was snoring, which just shows he was still breathing. Uh, He didn't have any 
um, side effects such as regurgitation because uh, because of what happened with John Grant, they withheld food. I think his last meal would have been the night before. And he wouldn't have been allowed any food after midnight or drink after midnight. Um, I want to, I want to highlight, um, I haven't done it for other episodes or other cases, but I do want to do it, uh, for Mr. Hale. Uh, his son, Mitch was a witness and spoke after the execution. And then he also gave interviews, uh, post-execution. Uh, one of his statements, uh, I think, immediately after the execution, today is not a good day. It's not a bad day. It's just a new day for our family. We can finally move on. It's not going to heal anything, but it closes this chapter. He also remarked that Coddington did not express remorse for Hale's killing, saying the omission proved the inmates' previous expressions of remorse weren't genuine. He never apologized. He never mentioned my daddy, never mentioned my family. So there was no true remorse. And then on August 29th, a return of death warrant was filed by the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. It just um, basically, you know, details the procedure and um, shows that the execution was carried out. And so that is James Coddington. You still there, Kyle? Yep. Okay. I'm still here. <laughs> Sorry. I was waiting yet for you to say something. So, no, it's yeah. an interesting case. It's great stuff as always. Thank you. Well, it is. It's interesting, but it's it's like, you know, what I like as, as we discussed, what I read in the appellate and post-conviction he wasn't accepting, you know, he wasn't accepting responsibility. He was perhaps giving lip service to saying, I did it, but I couldn't, I couldn't really have been responsible because I, yeah, like, I, I couldn't form the malice of forethought. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was an accident. Yeah. He never mistake, but it wasn't a deliberate horrible act to a 73 year old man that I called my friend who had previously helped me when I needed it. Well, and the problem with that is, I mean, you, you want to adopt that point of view of like, Oh, well it was an accident, but then that just opens the floodgates. So then you can commit any crime you want, as long as you can frame it as, Oh, it was an accident. I didn't do this on purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then crime becomes, you know, you can't contain it. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, what you have to live with the consequences of what you did, which is you right. killed an innocent man who tried to help you and just, you know, brought up exponential pain on his family. Correct. And, you know, I, I think, too, if you're really guilty and you really accept responsibility and you have true remorse, there wouldn't have been a, a first direct appeal. Right. Well, he would have waived exactly. everything. I deserve, I deserve this. I'm waiving it. And, and then he would have done it. Because 
Albert Hale's family went through 25 years while it wasn't a huge case in the media. They went through 25 years where uh, the direct appeal and the, the death sentence was vacated. So there was going to be a resentencing trial. So they had to go through the resentencing trial. And then oh. there was another direct appeal after that. It's 100%. I mean, if somebody actually is truly repentant, they would say, you know what? I am sorry. I did this. I plead guilty. I apologize. I feel horrible. I cannot imagine that I did this. I did. I was on crack. I'm sorry. I'm not even, I'm going to plead guilty. Just, I don't want to bother you anymore. It's my fault. I did it. I'll pay the price. There have been a couple of allegations that he pled guilty, but from my research, I don't see that he pled guilty. Uh-uh. Um, I, we had a trial. What he, I see, there if he was pleaded a guilty, he wouldn't have had a trial. He was convicted of murder and robbery at that trial. Exactly. That means he didn't plead guilty. Of course. And if it there was wasn't, a trial, he didn't plead guilty. It wasn't a, um, you know, it wasn't a, a two hour uh, allocution on the record. And then they had a sentencing trial, which in some states you can do that. But uh, I don't buy this, that you're remorseful and then mm-hmm. you claim innocence and you file 15 appeals around jury misconduct and ineffective right. counsel and sleepy juror and, yeah, and claiming, rainbow claiming in each over of, the courthouse. I mean, claiming in each of those proceedings that your trial was unfair. Yeah. You, you can't be remorseful if you're claiming all these technical issues. If you're remorseful, you acknowledge that you did it yeah. and you say, I feel terrible. I made a horrible mistake. I wish I could not do it. So, all right. Well, I think that's going to be it for us today. Great job as always, Kyle. No, well, thank you for doing so much work. I don't I hope everybody <laughs> understands how much work you put into these cases. I mean, she does a ton of work. Thank you. And that's why it took me so long. And and it took me so long because initially I wanted to do multiple cases. And the next case is a really difficult one for me. And it took a lot. And that's why we had the delay. I was under the weather. Well, and then I, I couldn't get my head around this other, the second case and third case. And then um, even, you know, yesterday I worked on Coddington until almost eight o'clock last night. And when I was working on my notes for the next case this morning, I realized I'm not going to get it done. There's no way. Well, I, I just want everybody listening to realize, unlike probably 90% of true crime podcast. Lisa does not just read Wikipedia in a couple of newspaper articles and just summarizes and then reads what they say over 45 minutes. She does all original research. And so I appreciate all the work that you put in because you really have an interesting and unique podcast that no one else can replicate. Thank you. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> Thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and co-host Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us in two weeks for episode 16, State of Oklahoma versus Benjamin Robert Cole. 
Cole is scheduled to face execution in Oklahoma in October 2022. In 2002, he killed his eight-month-old daughter, Brianna, while his wife was doing laundry. We'll talk about the crime, Cole's trial, appeals, and post-conviction claims. Until then, have a great two weeks and stay safe. Good night. Thank you.